before we really get into this episode, uh, something that has been tossed around a couple of di- times is the idea of maybe Arsh, or Lore Runner if you prefer, uh, you should start doing scripted stuff. I wanted to kind of talk about why I don't do that. There's a couple of big reasons why. Number one, if you're going to do scripted, it's generally considered best to either memorize it, which I am flat and capable of doing, or to basically not be visible. In other words, you would not be seeing me up on the screen, you'd be seeing something else. Most people who do scripted stuff actually show footage. I think I've already made it apparently clear, thanks to the recent series of copyright issues and certain things long-term-wise that I'm trying to avoid that I don't even want to talk about right now, why I've avoided doing gameplay and footage from the shows on my show. Even the little tidbit at the end of my show occasionally will get me a copyright sting against me. Not Nothing big, just, you know, like, hey, we're taking the money from this episode. It's like, okay, whatever. So that's the first big reason. The second big reason is I don't know how I'd sound scripted. I keep thinking about doing one of these episodes scripted just to see what it's like, just to see what you guys think, you know, putting my thoughts down in advance and then just reading from that. It would still be me writing it, but I don't know. We'll see. I experimented with scripting once a long time ago, back before I was actually big, back when I was just doing this for fun. I didn't really like doing it then, which is the main reason I stopped. Anyways, as ever, I I, I welcome your guys' thoughts on the matter. Now, some episodes I look at have basically no behind-the-scenes information. I've talked about this problem before, and this is another one of those. I know more about the special effects work that went into this episode than anything else. And I'm not going to share it with you because it's it's just... I mean, it's fascinating stuff the way they used a model and CGI in order to get the, the caretaker array to implode and all that fun stuff. But, yeah, that's basically all I got. I do want to mention one thing really quick. Uh, Tiny Ron plays the Alpha Herosian here and does a pretty good job of the role, all things considered. For those of you who don't know, he played uh, Myhardu, I could be pronouncing that incorrectly, over on TNG and Deep Space Nine. He was uh, Grand Nagus Zex bodyguard, servant, I don't know what you want to call him, but you know, the big guy. Um, he actually is about seven feet tall in real life, and he tends to get roles, which recall for a really big guy. He played, uh, I can't remember his name, the big guy <laughs> in the Rocketeer movie, to give you another example. So he actually does a pretty good job of the alpha in this episode, and there was some discussion about him behind the scenes, but that's it, that's all I got. So, But let's talk about two things regarding fiction as a whole before we get into the episode proper. One of the things that I thought about way back in Season 1 was, and, and complained about was the fact that the Maquis and the Voyager crew merged so well that it would literally never come up again until it was in a holodeck episode. Uh, the one with the Seska program. I don't even remember the name of it. Uh, worst Case Scenario, that was the name of that episode. Just, yeah, it was they, the two completely gelled. And that always struck me as off and wrong. But I do have to say, when I was watching this episode for the first time, I actually had a reason occur to me, just out of the blue, of why it is the Maquis merged with the Starfleet so well under these circumstances. I'm not saying this is on purpose, because I know it isn't. And I'm not saying that they get credit for this, because they don't. But I do kind of like the implication here that the Maquis were always a political group. Now, I know that sounds weird, because, you know, they were freedom fighters in their own wise, and, you know, cause, you know, they were in it for the cause and all the fun stuff. But the reality of it is, that is a political problem. A political problem which doesn't exist out here. In the same sense that Starfleet doesn't exist out here. 
In other words, the idea here is that the Starfleet and Maquis crew both merged so well because neither of them were what they were anymore. I mean, yes, it's a Starfleet vessel, but let's be honest with ourselves, Voyager is not a Starfleet vessel, not in any way that actually counts. They're running forward on how Starfleet functioned, or how they think it should have functioned at the time with regards to protocol and whatnot, and yet are more than capable of and do bend the rules constantly, and of course don't have a higher up to report to and support structure to uh, keep them going. So they really aren't Starfleet in any way that actually matters. But they also aren't Maquis in any way that matters, because again, Maquis is a purely political group, which, again, doesn't exist out here for basically the same reasons. So I've always felt uh, I, I, th that this is something that should have been explored more in the, sh more in the show. But at the very least, it's, it's an explanation, right? I mean, it's something. Moving on. So anyone who's watched Star Trek for any period of time knows about what I mean when I refer to the species of hats. But for those of you who don't, let me explain what I mean. The Klingons are honorable. The Ferengi care about money. The... Uh, I don't know, the Romulans are deceptive, and the Vulcans are logical, and the, uh, I can't think of the names all of a sudden, uh, the Kazon are stupid, you know, the Herosian are hunters. In other words, a lot of the species of the weak and species in general in Star Trek tend to have a hat. All members of that species revolve around that hat. Arguably, the only two races that don't defi aren't defined by a hat are the Bajorans and the Cardassians, and all of that is because of Deep Space Nine. However... It's not just because of the quality of the Deep Space Nine show, although that has something to do with it as well. It's because of the fact that Deep Space Nine had chance to really flesh them out. For example, two of the examples I just gave are debatably not true. Romulan and Vulcan, both being them. Romulans, sure, tend to be deceptive, but they also have a strong sense of loyalty. They're very big on family. They have a huge sense of, uh, for lack of a better term, gravity about their actions. Uh, a, a bit of self-importance, but also, in some cases, a degree of... Uh, responsibility for what they do. You know, there's a variety there. It's a species there. It's a culture. It's not just a hat. It's the same thing with the Vulcans. It's the same thing with any species that has actually had time to really be fleshed out in Star Trek. And yes, the Klingons count as well. Although a lot of that happened on DS9 as well. But I digress. The point being, the species of hats thing mostly applies to species that don't get much screen time or one-off things. You know, you have one episode for a species, so here they are five episodes or whatever. Now, there's no denying that this is a thing, but the question I'm bringing up right now is, is it a good thing or a bad thing? And I know that sounds weird, but let me, let me explain what I mean by this. You have 45 minutes to do an entire episode and examine the culture of an entire species. Can you do an entire culture, or at the very least a glimpse of that culture, in 45 minutes while still having room for everything else? Now, the answer is yes, and I can point definitively to an example of this. Um, whose names I just forgot. It's the lizard people in Voyager. Oh my god, what are their names? What's their names? The episode Distant Origin. Voth. The Voth. We only got one episode of the Voth, ever. We never get anything else of the Voth, except when, when Star Trek Online comes out. And yet that one episode shows us enough of, their in, of insight into their culture and into their people to show that they're not just a race of hats. They have variety. They have depth to them. So it is possible, but it is also worth noting that a huge chunk of that episode was done from their perspective, or at the very least included them. I'd say like 90% of the footage of Distant Origin included the Voth people, and multiple Voth for that matter, not just one, although some of it involved just the one scientist along with Chakotay. The point is, it is possible, 
but it's not something you want to do all the time because that is very taxing and uh, creatively taxing and very difficult. Let me explain what I mean by creatively taxing. One of the things that I and other people like me when it comes to writing or game design, because it applies equally to both, have difficulty with is constantly being creative. You know, okay, come up with some new storyline for this town you just entered. Uh, Okay, um, (laughs) let me think about this. And you want to do something good. You don't want to just crap something out because you have standards. You know, you you have some degree of of pride in your work, but it's like, ugh. You just get creatively sapped after a while. So imagine if you had to come up with a brand new culture like two or three weeks out of five, give or take. Just completely, whole cloth. After a while, that's going to get to you. So what we came up with instead was the idea of hats. There's a second reason for this too, and it's the difficulty thing. It is difficult to do what they did with the Voth. And again, they only really pulled it off, I think, because we got so much exposure to them from their perspective. You know, the camera was with the Voth, not with the Voyager crew for the most of that episode. Um, so, yeah, when it comes to uh, when it comes to coming up with a new species that we have to see for an episode, it makes more sense to be like. You know, it's like a flash in the pan. It's, it's, it's a blink. It's a picture. Here, try to extrapolate from this picture, right? Now, the problem comes from a lot of writers decided to make that just their thing. Uh, to, to, to take what is... I'm trying to explain this properly, and I'm failing. I'm really tired, forgive me. Creatively tired, too. Um, they're trying to take something that is a unfortunate but acceptable negative aspect of writing a television show... You know, something that we accept, but we don't like it, so we try our best anyways. And turning that into, yeah, we'll just live with it because we're lazy, basically. Or we don't care, or we don't take pride in our work, or whatever. It's that fine line between the two that, from a distance, looks like it's the same position. But when you actually analyze the two, it's clear that one person at least tried, or the other person didn't. That's where the term Planet of Hats actually comes from. From the people who would literally just, instead of trying to come up with a species, they would come up with... A phrase, and that phrase is the species. These people are blah, these people are blah, these people are blah. And nothing else was ever attempted to be done with them to try and show anything other than blah. That's the concept of the Planet of the Hats. Now, I mention this here because the Herogen are one of the most severe Planet of Hats races I've seen in a while, which is funny because they get more than one episode of exposure. I think they get six total, not counting two parters. Uh, I could be off on that. There's Mission of Bottle, Prey, Hunted, Killing Game 1, Killing Game 2, and then the two-parters way later. So it's seven episodes total if we count the two-parters. Uh, I'm also not counting Sunkatsi, so I guess that pushes it up to eight. Eight episodes. That's actually pretty far, uh, relatively speaking, for a one-off epi- or for one one-off race. Although it's worth noting that two of those episodes shouldn't count. I'll talk about that much later. So are the Herogen another species of hats? Well, yes, the hunt. Everything is about the hunt. But I'm going to give them a pass because of the killing game. Now, I'm not going to talk about that here, because we're we're not on that episode yet. But I'll talk about it there, why I feel like the Herogen are not just another planet of hats, in in my opinion. But here's the thing about the whole planet of hats thing. This is, I feel like, one of those no-win scenarios. Is it a good thing to do the Planet of Hats thing? No, absolutely. Is it a bad thing to do the Planet of Hats thing? Not necessarily. One of the things you can do with a concept of Planet of Hats is start with a phrase, like so many of these writers did, and then show tiny little details here and there showing that that phrase is not absolute, does not actually apply to all of them. 
A good example of this is actually the episode uh, Random Thought, which we just covered. Our, our hat is, you know, telepathic and we're all completely under control, nonviolent. And then, now, granted, they weren't subtle about this, but the hidden undercurrent of the idea that people would willingly engage in such violent thoughts on purpose as a sort of a, an undermarket, if you will, that was fascinating and showed us just a tiny little insight into the way that culture works. It gave it just enough fleshing out so that even with our one little picture, we still get to think of them as being more than just the, you know, the planet of we're all self-controlled kind of a thing. One of the things that was subtle in that, though, is that one of the people who engaged in that illicit activity was an old woman. I know this sounds weird, but her age, her gender doesn't matter, but her age really says something, that an, a person who is that old would, would be willing to engage in that kind of activity. That just opens up a Pandora's box of, of, of possibilities for her, for her species, for her family, for the culture of the planet, for the, the fact that someone who is that far along would be willing to engage in such an illicit activity. It says something. And you just leave that thread dangling. You don't have to ever follow up on that. You just let the audience look at that and, and examine that. It's just just food for thought, basically. I, as ever, I welcome your guys' comments on the concept of the hats thing. Let's move on to the Herogen. The hunt, the hunt, the hunt. Except the funny part is this is not a Herogen episode. That brings me to the next point I want to talk about. I've talked before about how I feel artificial limits can help creativity, yet when you adhere to a rule set at the exception of creativity, it's a bad thing. I know that's a very fine line between the two, but I've often said that Voyager, especially in this whole era of Trek in general, tried too hard to adhere to the rules at the expense of what they were doing. Uh, DS9 kind of managed to slide under the carpet on that in some cases, but even DS9 was not immune to this. Rick Berman every now and again would wander over there and just kind of wave his hand around and make things worse, because that's what he does. But, <laughs> but in all honesty, one of the things I've spoken out against several times is the ship must be endangered, the A-plot and the B-plot concept. The A-plot of this episode is amazing. It's incredible. It's, it, I feel like I'm watching The Swarm again, except even better, because the A-plot is all about character development and character advancement and character growth and character interaction. It's character, 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 character all over the place. It's great stuff. Well-acted, well-performed, well-written, well-directed. The B-plot is, the Herogen are here, and we care about the prey, and then we die. Now, I said that briefly, but I took a note here. The Herogens show up before this, but the Herogens do not become a threat to the crew until 29 minutes into a 43-minute episode. Think about this for a moment. This spot over here has to deal with the Herogen, and actually it's more like this spot, because there's a very long, there's like a five-minute coda at the end of this episode after the Herogen are dealt with. So, uh... So that's about nine minutes of a 43-minute episode devoted to the B-plot of the ship is in danger. Here's the weird thing. This is why I say this is a fine line, and it's not as set in stand as you think. Because I'm against adhering to the rules all the time. I, I think I've made that clear about this point. But that also means not adhering to the rules all the time would be adhering to a rule all the time, if you understand what I mean by that. Or to explain this in a slightly less circum, uh, circ circuitous manner. I think the fact that the B-plot existed actually helped this episode, if only barely. And the reason why is this. It was a peek at the Herogen. We hadn't seen the Herogen yet. They, we saw the, a Herogen guy back in the last episode. That's it. And then we see, a Hero, the, we see the Herogen ships, and we see a little bit, that little of their culture in this episode. It's actually a fascinating approach because 
it's something that Star Trek hadn't really done up until this point in time. In other words, most of the time, in most Star Trek, this includes Deep Space Nine Night, by the way, most Star Treks would be like, the, the ne- episode after this, uh, Prey, I believe, it's Prey or Hunted, one of the two. Anyways, the next episode after this would be like the first episode of the Herogen's appearance in most Star Treks. But instead, they went out of their way to introduce them early in Message in a Bottle, and then have a, bl- a brief appearance of them in this episode, um, specifically so that we would have a build-up to the Herogen actually being a threat over hunted prey and killing game, and then the Herogen threat would go away. Now, I think that was a good idea. And I think it really shows the, that the Voyager staff uh, at this point in time was really trying for a little bit more continuity in the ways that they could. Because the Herogen were done deliberately on this way specifically for the purposes of showing continuity, showing progression, actually. They wanted a race that showed up, was a threat, and then left. Because that made sense. Voyager is still moving. It was a way to create that feeling of Voyager's progression back home without actually showing them on a map at the beginning of every episode, which was an option that was actually discussed, by the way, literally starting the episode with, you know, and now we're here, and now we're here, and now we're here. But I like this idea better, showing an enemy show up and then having the enemy leave. That makes sense, right? Now, they didn't do much of this past the Herogen. I'll talk about this more when we get through Season 5, and the Borg are going to become a lot more prevalent, unfortunately. But it was a good idea, so I give them props for that, even though ultimately it feels out of place in an episode that's literally all about characterization to have the Herogen show up and be like, oh, we are the Herogen, and then they get defeated inside of like three minutes. <laughs> it, was, it was incredibly bad, but I digress. Let's, let's, let's go on. So, um, we get to see more of the goal-oriented Seven of Nine, someone who is literally uh, neglecting her own physical uh, capacities in order to try and decipher, decipher these messages. This is a little tiny bit of a note that's going to be coming back up in the killing game, believe it or not. I know this note is later in my notes, but I like to jump around anyway, so screw you. But, <laughs> I'm kidding, don't, I, I don't mean that. But later on in this episode, Seven has a discussion with Tuvok about trust. And Tuvok asks her a pointed question. Pointed question. Do, does the captain's opinion about you matter? Of all the people Seven is connected with, Janeway is obviously the strongest and the one that, you know, will eventually be the one that's actually fleshed out the most over the course of the next several episodes, or seasons, I should say. And then she gets together with Chakotay out of nowhere. Um, <laughs> I'm not saying Janeway and her should have gotten together. I'm just saying that's dumb for her to get together with Chakotay, but I'm not going to get into that yet. Point is, it's a nice little subtle nod that I want you to keep in the back of your mind for when we get to the killing game, because... On the face of it, it's just Seven being goal-oriented again, but we already saw that in Message in a Bottle. Here we see that it's it's segueing into something more, that Seven has started to care about something. And honestly, in all just my personal perspective on that, if Tuvok had not pointedly asked her, do you care about this? I don't think it would have occurred to Seven that she did, because she is so alien, so unused to the concept of caring about something for herself that it wasn't something that she would recognize. But it is obvious that she does look at Janeway as something of a mother figure, someone who is isn't is someone she cares about her opinion, her perspective on. That's actually shown several times throughout this episode in the way uh, people care about other people's opinions on them, most strongly in Tom with his father, but I'll talk about that later. So again, more, more development of Seven's character growth, uh, which is awesome. Um, as I've said before, her character growth is really awesome through Season 4 and some of Season 5. And then they just throw it out the window for some reason. But anyways, uh, 
I like... Okay. This is a Jerry Taylor script. Now, I've talked bad about her before, and with good reason. But one thing I'll give her credit for is she really... She did what all writers should do. She sat down and tried to get better at it. You know, she, she, she worked out her problems, hammered out what her strengths were, and really tried to focus on those. If I were to nitpick this episode... I would have a dozen, dozen nitpicks to go. There's a lot of things that are contradictory or don't make sense or otherwise are flawed with regards to the logic of the episode. But she focused on her strengths, which isn't Janeway being the frickin' Mary Sue, but instead all about the characters, all about the characterization, the very human interactions between people. So definite props to Jerry Taylor for starting to really find her footing when it comes to being a writer. Now... I absolutely love the scene. There's there's a lot of scenes in this episode I really love. So forgive me, this is going to be a lot of gushing. Janeway gets a scene where she's uh, she's she's reading the the data packet from Starfleet, and you know they're all like, oh, maybe it'll be a, a way home, or maybe it'll be something we can do to 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 uh, communicate back, or something like that, or maybe it's my nose itching, like it always does. But no, and then she just she starts reading it, and you know you wouldn't imagine how your children have. And then she just cuts herself off as she and Mulgrew nails this line: "These are letters." I have no words to explain what that line means, but this episode is all about that line: "These are letters." This is not about getting home. This is not about succeeding. This is not about survival. This is that wonderful theme that's been throughout Season 4 coming right back to the forefront. Survival has nothing to do with getting letters from home. And vice versa. You could argue semantics. Please don't. <laughs> I get the semantics. I get you could say that you could be more motivated to survive. But from the survivalist perspective, things like good feelings or emotions or hope or that kind of thing are basically irrelevant. But this episode is all about living. Why is it they put so much priority, put so much effort and resources and time and insistence on getting these letters? Because of course they do. It's their first priority. These are letters from home. The whole episode revolves around that idea. What they do with Harry Kim is brilliant. He is obviously one of the forefront characters of this episode. Honestly, I would go so far as to say that Harry Kim is actually the main principal character of this episode. Because everyone else's reaction to the letter situation revolves around him. Harry Kim, and this is, by the way, I love this. They've actually figured out how to do something with Harry and Voyager. It's a little thing, but it's something. Harry is the kid who misses home. And I know that's a little thing, but it is something. And it is integral to the way he acts in this entire episode. The way he functions, the way he reflects on other characters as, as they're all dealing with this letter situation. I love the incredible chemistry. I, I, hang on, there's, there's a note here. I want to go down to it. The cast. I talked about this all the way back in season one. One of the reasons I feel that Voyager has succeeded so well is because the cast and crew had amazing chemistry together. Even when they had a bad script. Even when they had faulty direction. Even when Rick Berman was waving his hands around, ruining everything. The cast helped to elevate it past the point of terrible. There's a scene where Janeway comes to the bridge and there's just this literally palpable feeling of excitement and hope and camaraderie and family on the bridge. And it's like a five-second scene. And, and Harry is like, did, did you get a letter, Janeway? And Janeway's like, yes, I... Um, 
I'll be in my ready room, you know. And it's just so human. I love it. It's hard not to get caught up in the excitement of it because of how much they're demonstrating and, and showing it. Again, palpable. Um, but yeah, Harry Kim, he... Poor Harry. He does get his letter by the end of the episode. I do like that we don't see his letter, as weird as that sounds. I think that would have been unnecessary. Because that's not the point. We needed to see the letter for Chakotay. We needed to see the letter for Janeway. We didn't need to see the letter for Harry. Because we know what it's going to say. We're your family and we love you. Harry knew that was the, what the letter was going to be. That didn't matter either. Again, this is not about basic fundamentals. This is not about the building blocks. This is not about survival. This is about knowing that your family knows you're out here and that they still care about you. Having them reach out and take your hand. A simple gesture. And that's why it was so important to Harry the whole episode to receive that. There's a great scene where he goes into Balana and, you know, he, he was actually looking for Seven, but he wasn't actually looking for Seven. He was just... I was hoping to find a letter. And the wonderful chemistry of that scene. This is, okay, I'm going to rewind a bit because I'm just bouncing all over the episode here. But again, Harry is like the focal point of all of this. Earlier on, let's rewind a bit. Earlier on, Neelix, uh, let's just go back to the beginning of my notes. Let's, let's really do this chronologically, okay? Neelix um, delivers a letter to Tuvok. Now, as I've discussed a few trillion times... Vulcans have emotions. They have very strong emotions. They exert constant mental discipline to keep themselves reined in. That's and and that explains everything about Vulcans, in my opinion. I I, <laughs> I don't know why Enterprise got it so wrong, but anyways, <laughs> um, but I love the scene where Tuvok is like, you know, I, he gives a very logical, very survival answer. That letter will still be there when I'm done. But he is a Vulcan, a real Vulcan. As I've said before, he is basically one of the best Vulcan actors ever, in my opinion, right up there with Mark Leonard. And so as soon as T Neelix is gone, as soon as he doesn't have to keep that facade anymore, he puts the pad down, goes back to his work, hesitates, thinks about it, looks at the pad, and decides to go ahead and read it. Because it matters to him. He does care about his family. He does care about that word from home. He does care about more than mere survival. Love it. And then Janeway. This episode is one of the best directed episodes I've seen of them. I mean, I've mentioned great directing before, but there's a wonderful scene where Janeway goes and sits, and we see that it's from Mark. Now, that shot is important. It, it's, the visual directing is perfect. He, she holds up the pad, and it's from Mark in huge letters. So it's obviously from her fiancé, who some of us remember from back in season one. And then the rest of the text is irrelevant because we don't need to see that text. We see everything that message says in her expression. No dialogue, no nothing, just her expression as she's warm and soft and you've got that hope and that giddiness and then it just deflates slowly until there's just this coldness left on her expression. We know everything that letter said. We didn't need it to be explained to us. Her face told us everything it had to. And then Chakotay goes to Taurus with the letter that a lot of us were expecting because some of us actually followed Star Trek canon as a whole thing because we like we were invested in the story. I've talked about this before. This is what continuity really means. It means investment. It means consequences. Well, for those of you who don't remember, and this is kind of a spoiler, so I'm giving you a moment to... You know, if you have not watched DS9, because this actually happened in DS9, you know, this is your moment to pause here. 
The Maquis were extinguished in DS9 with only a handful of survivors. One of those survivors sent a message to Chakotay telling him that the Maquis are gone. The Dominion exterminated them mercilessly. As a as a political ploy, actually. They did it because it was like a, a token to give the Cardassians. The Cardassians were like, we will join you if you help us with the Maquis. And the Dominion was like, okay, sure. Because it meant nothing to them. It meant nothing to the Dominion to exterminate the entirety of the Maquis. Except for the few handful of survivors. <laughs> I mention this, though, because this says volumes without saying it. First of all, is the, uh, all the obvious stuff is right there. Chakotay obviously believed in the cause. He was on the officer track in Starfleet and left that to join the Maquis. That says a lot about his character, and I've talked about this before. And obviously Torres cared about the Maquis as well. They're the only two characters we see their interactions with in this one. And yet both of them react perfectly to this one. The, the way Chakotay tells her, like literally admitting that he doesn't know how to tell her, you know, that the trust that's there and, and the raw emotion. It's, it's like a nerve that's been exposed. And he doesn't know how to deal with that. But the quiet thing I like about that is it meant that someone at Starfleet got the word that Voyager was alive and someone said, we need to contact the survivors of the Maquis. And I love that. It's the kind of thing that doesn't really mean anything until you think about it. Because it would have been very easy to just ignore that. Why would we bother to send letters to the Maquis members who are on the Voyager? Screw them, they're the enemy, right? Or they're a political expediency that we don't have to think about anymore. I mean, we were enemies, as, as I already mentioned. But I like to think that the Starfleet that has become, at this point in time, back home, has gotten to the point where at least some members of Starfleet would say, no, those people deserve to hear from home just as much as anyone else and would go out of their way to see if any of the surviving members of the Maquis would want to send letters. And I like that. Again, very human. And then there's Harry and Tom. Again, I'm, I'm building back up to my original point here. Harry and Tom are very yin and yang when it comes to this. And again, this is a great way of demonstrating other, uh, you know, how other characters react around Harry. Because obviously Harry wants news from home. He needs news from home. He's, he's just... Tom, Tom doesn't care. Well, I mean, he does care. But he doesn't think he cares. And the funny thing is, his reasoning for why he says he doesn't care is perfectly sound and logical. My life here is better in every way than any life I've ever known. As Tom will say much, 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 much later in Season 7, why would I want to get home? I am home. Speaking of Voyager. But it's a great way to highlight the difference between the two characters because Tom actually gives away his, his hiding in one simple line. If you don't get your hopes up, you know, no disappointment. In other words, there is a part of Tom underneath all that cynicism, underneath all that logic, that says he does want to get word from home. He's just trying to ignore it, trying to push away from it, which we'll come back to that in a minute. And then Janeway gives an order to Seven, and this scene serves wonderful double duty, because in the first hand, it's a way to show that the letter she got from Mark has affected her. She's very cold in that scene, very blunt, very brusque. She doesn't enter the realm of rude, but it's clear that she is impacted by the letter. But it also serves the other point, and again, this will come back up in the killing game, as I mentioned earlier. She demands that someone else go with Seven. Seven reacts naturally. 
In other words, why? Why do I need to go with someone? Don't you trust me to go on a shuttle by myself? Again, we'll talk about that more when we get to future episodes. And then Harry and Balana have a great scene. This is what I was building back up to. I'd just like to take a moment and say that I always wish that the friendship between Balana and Harry had been more fleshed out. The two actually had really good chemistry all the way back in Caretaker. And every now and again, some, one of the writers remembers that the two of these characters are supposed to be friends and, and pairs them up. And they have some great scenes together. This is another example of those. Harry, Balana is barely restrained. She's, she's, she's curt. She's quiet. She, you can tell she is just a, a boiling volcano of emotions right now because she just learned that everything and everyone she loved back home is dead. And, well, not everything, but you know what I mean. And Harry, he can't wait to get word from back home. He needs to know what's happening. He needs to contact his family. And the two of them play off of each other for a bit about the seven thing before finally Harry's like, I just I wanted to see if there was a letter for me. And the quiet way he admits that, you can tell in his tone he realizes what he's saying is stupid. If there was a letter for him, he'd probably already have it. And he also knows deep down that he doesn't need that letter, not like a lot of other people do. It's just going to say, hi, we love you. I talked about this before. But it still matters to him. And the moment he says that and opens himself up in that way, Balana's just... All that shaking, all that volcano, it subsides. And, and we see her genuine empathy and caring about Harry as a friend. And, and, and that empathy just goes through there as she's like, you know, I'm, I understand and we'll get it. And it's wonderful again because this is Bolana, right? Someone who didn't expect word from home. Someone who didn't want word from home. And when she got word from home, it was terrible, terrible news. And yet she still manages to reach out to Harry who is desperate for a word from home that doesn't matter. And then they have the Tom and Bellana scene. Now, I know, there's some Herogen stuff that interrupts us. I've kind of already talked about that. I really don't have anything else to add about the Herogen. Not in this episode. But then there's this Tom and Bellana scene. And this is one of the reasons why I say the Tom and Bellana relationship is the best relation, second best relationship that's ever been done in Star Trek. Because it's a relationship. There's no kissing, there's no intimacy, and there's no sexual connotations in that scene at all. It is all about two people who are very close to each other, very intimately connected to each other, emotionally and mentally, who are both wounded. Tom comes in, trying to wear the front, and trying to wear the face, and trying to deal with his own emotional turmoil about his dad and how he uh, he does care about his dad and he does care about what his dad thinks of him and how he really wants that word from home but he can't bring himself to accept or admit that especially given the fact that his dad and him have had a terrible relationship to, up to this point in time and then Balana, who again as i just discussed is in a, is an emotional volcano right now and both of them are just trying to keep that from each other until finally he admits the truth which leads her to admit the truth and the two of them reconcile so naturally and so humanly as he just embraces her and says, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, Bellana. And here I am talking about something that doesn't matter. I can't, I, you know, it's, a, it's my favorite scene of this whole episode. It's great. It's amazing. The chemistry is, is, is fantastic. And again, it is two people who love each other, who are hurt, and who are doing the best they can to help each other through that. 
there's a line right towards the end. In fact, honestly, I've only got two more points at the end of this, so I'm just going to segue right into this. Tom didn't get his letter at the end of the episode. Harry did. But Tom didn't. And I like that. Two reasons I like that. One, it allowed Tom to come to the truth and admission of the reality of the situation internally without having any external stimuli. He didn't have a letter from home. Maybe his father said, I love you. Maybe his father said, I miss you. Maybe his father said, you're a disgrace to Starfleet. Maybe his father was just cold or unable to really emote himself properly. You know, it doesn't matter because Tom was able to admit, regardless of what his father said, that he missed his father. He didn't say it in words, but he was able to admit it to himself. And leaving that thread dangling means that it can be brought back up later, and it will be. He will actually have an interaction with his father later, and that plot thread will pay off later. So that was good. The other thing I like about it is Bellana was able to fully reconcile the situation with Tom, because I think she sympathizes with him in more ways than one. She was just as much of an outcast back home as Tom was actually arguably less of one, now that I think about it. So, But she understands the concept of not wanting a letter from home. And at the same time, we see just a tiny tidbit of Bellana being, for lack of a better term, envious of Tom. Envious of the fact that he has someone who can send a letter to him now. You know? Final thought on the episode. They destroy the array. The whole array. The whole thing. Expanding half the galaxy. Only Voyager. <laughs> was that a good thing, yes or no? Debatable. I think it was a good thing, but not here. It was a necessary move. Leaving the array open would make it feel too normal too quickly. Getting letters from home should have an impact. Like I've talked about this whole thing, it should be a big deal. At least early on. It shouldn't become the norm until we've advanced a little bit further. That's if This is classic, uh, a classic situation of where you don't want to write too quickly. You don't want to get to the good stuff, right? So chopping it off and leaving the, the viewers and the, the characters with just that taste of home leaves you wanting more and, and, and being able to grow naturally and to actually work for a real communication with home, which they will eventually do. Um, the only thing is I feel like they cut it off a little bit too soon. I would have probably done it next episode or next, next episode. Before the killing game, definitely. But not quite so soon, because it's literally, we've gotten in touch with home, we've gotten some letters, and then chunk. I feel like that was just a little bit too quick. Maybe that's just my perspective on it. Anyways, I've got nothing else to say. Great episode. Love this episode. Can't wait for the next one. Well, we will talk more about the Herosian in a little bit more detail than just, they're there, and then they died. See you next time, guys. Excuse me if I can't feel terribly sorry for you. I learned this morning that a lot of my friends are dead. And I've gone from being so angry that I wanted to kill someone to crying for an hour. And now I'm just trying to, to accept it and move on. Alana, that's awful. Oh, I am so sorry. And here I am going on about something that doesn't even matter anymore. Oh, I'm sorry. It obviously does. You care what he thinks about you. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I still do. I'll let you know when I get the whole letter. <laughs>